This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Free market economics. What is it and how do we learn about it? For its advocates, the term is given credit as the source of American prosperity. For its detractors, free markets are the scapegoats for inequality and the suffering of the poor. As market participants, we don't need to understand economics. But a deeper appreciation of market dynamics could serve to better inform our life choices and give us the necessary tools to scrutinize the promises of business leaders and politicians eager to enlist our patronage and support. If the laws of economics underpin our society and spontaneously organize us into producers and consumers, how can we use our own experience to reveal those principles and find economics in our everyday lives? My guest today is Matt Hennessy, Associate Editorial Page Features Editor at The Wall Street Journal and author of the recently released book, Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. In the book, Mr. Hennessy targets readers without economics degrees, challenging them to observe the incentives that motivate their decisions, and then mapping those choices to the fundamental principles of supply and demand and the tenets of economics. Mr. Hennessy will share with us why he believes an understanding of economics is so important to us all, and why, with a little reflection and observation of our own behavior and choices, we can see the world with a fresh perspective and perhaps anoint ourselves budding economists. When I return, I'll be joined by Wall Street Journal editor and author, Matt Hennessy. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Associate Editorial Page Features Editor at the Wall Street Journal and author of the recently released book, Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market, Matthew Hennessy. Welcome to Hubwonk, Matthew. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I enjoyed reading your book. It was uh, it was really a, a, an easy read, a wonderful uh, read, and I recommend it to our listeners. Uh, I want to whet their appetite about uh, what the book is about. Uh, the title uh, gives, I, th I think, a, a great deal away. Uh, it's a reference clearly to uh, Adam Smith's invisible hand. You, you coined it as the visible hand, so a little a turn of a phrase there. Uh, tell us why you framed the book uh, with this uh, visible hand or a reference to Adam Smith. Give us a sense of where the book is coming from. Well, my big idea was that I wanted to write a book about economics for people who think that uh, they don't like economics or for whom that idea is, uh, that word is, it represents something scary um, because I was very much that kind of personal. I, I think I might actually still kind of be that, that type of person. Um, the word economics uh, is not in, is not intuitive to a lot of people. What it means sounds, uh, it sounds like it has something to do with money uh, or math, or just um, ideas that 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 are difficult to comprehend, and, and that you'd rather sort of not spend any time with. I I grew up in a home that was oriented in that way. We didn't talk that much about economics, so I wanted to write a book that helped lay out some some basic principles um, to demystify a few things about what economics is and why it matters. Um, but also to kind of give three cheers for the free market because you don't hear too much um, positive about market economics these days. A lot of criticism from both the left and the right 
of the, of of markets and of capitalism broadly. So I wanted to do a little bit of a, 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 I had a I had a dual agenda in mind. I wanted to offer a kind of a primer of basic economics for lay people. And um, just a reminder that capitalism has been very, very good to us, despite, you know, it's obvious uh, occasional shortcomings. Um, we'd be really lost without it. Indeed. Um, I, I, I like how you set this up by saying, you know, economics for for uh, those who may not be familiar with all the concepts. But what I thought some of the magic of the bill of the book was that um, you describe economics rather than it being a system that's sort of created by someone with rules to follow. Uh, you see it more as sort of this ubiquitous energy, uh, a descriptive way to talk about how we all interact with one another. Uh, I think you compare it in some cases to, to uh, sciences like physics. You, know, you don't need to understand it to have it have its uh, effect on you. We uh, Gravity affects us whether we will understand how it works or not. Um, why do you describe uh, economics more uh, um, uh, as something that is not value-laden, but rather um, e ever and always present? Well, I think a common misperception is that uh, the market economy is uh, simply one of a number of choices that a society could use to organize itself. You could be a market economy, you could be kind of a half and half hybrid mar uh, market, half market economy, half controlled economy. You could have a collectivized economy. There are all sorts of different um, flavors that you could choose from. You pick one like a suit of clothes, you put it on, you see if it fits. If it's not quite fitting right, you know, you make some adjustments and you tinker with it and you um, you end up with the system that works the best for you. Um, I think that that's the wrong way of looking at economics because the, the forces of the market, i.e. supply and demand, uh, and some of the... Um, you know, corollary implications of supply and demand, such as that, you know, we live in an environment of scarcity, so we can't have everything we want. Therefore, life is about trade-offs. We have to make trade-offs uh, based on uh, valuations of our own utility in various circumstances. Um, all of that stuff is not up for debate. It's simply uh, an observed reality. It's the, you know, what Adam Smith was doing in The Wealth of Nations was much more like reporting, much more like, um, you know, excavating the the reality that we that we live inside of, and reflecting it back to us, than it was about inventing or invent. You know, coming up with some sort of new uh, fangled system that you could overlay over a traditional society and make a lot of money that would be very profitable for certain class of people, which is frequently how capitalism is um, misrepresented. Uh, so I want to make sure, you know, it's been very difficult. I have to train myself not to talk about the market system because that's the kind of lingo that we use when we discuss these things. Um, because I very much don't believe that it is a system. A system implies uh, a systematizer, an inventor of some kind. I think a lot of people make that mistake of thinking that Adam Smith invented this stuff that you know, before he came along and a couple of other guys, economics didn't even exist. We just lived in these sort of traditional patterns governed by the rhythms of nature or the rhythms of the church or the rhythms of uh, uh, throne and altar kind of uh, uh, lifestyle. And here comes Adam Smith with his brand new system and kind of uh, you know ruined the Garden of Eden, if you, if you choose to look at it that way, or unleashed a bunch of terrible forces uh, that have destroyed a lot of things that are really valuable in terms of 
you know, uh, social structures and uh, interpersonal ties, the kind of all the negative things you hear about what capitalism does, how it erodes, um, uh, you know, important values or um, uh, destroys the foundation of certain institutions. Um, That's just not true. That's not what happened. Adam Smith uh, wrote a book in which he described the way that people live their lives, their commercial lives, certainly, uh, but also their social lives, how they make decisions in an environment of scarcity, how they evaluate trade-offs, and how they profit from the fruit of their own ambition, and how uh, sort of uh, uh, the sum total of every individual working for his own benefit or the benefit of his own family or for his own ends um, somehow miraculously, this is the miracle of the market, um, creates a net benefit for all of society, much, much more so uh, than you know the effect, the work of some uh, exterior force trying to increase that benefit. That's this is the famous notion of the invisible hand. So uh, that's a long way of saying I don't think economics or market economics is a system, and I think that people should avoid using that term. Wonderful. Okay, so you you introduced a couple of good terms there. One of them is scarcity. I think we will all learn that if we do take economics on day one, infinite demand, uh, infinite needs, uh, finite supply. So we have to make choices. In your book, you, you use real world examples to talk about how we as actors in a market, in a free market, uh, we have the capacity as consumers to make choices and and make trade offs. Share with our listeners uh, some of the cases you use in your book about how. Um, uh, the principles of economics manifest in our own lives and our own choices as consumers. Um, well, the one that springs to mind is uh, is is uh, was a very personal one that that um, I uh, you know a trade off that I faced when I was in high school, which is that uh, and this might have been the first time that I really encountered this reality, which is so important and which if you try to ignore it or um, fight against it will make your life really miserable. Which is that. Um, uh, we can't, you know, as, as the Rolling Stones said, you can't, what did they say? You can't always, always get what get you what want. You want. <laughs> um, so you have to make trade-offs. I, I wanted to play baseball in the spring, but I also wanted to be in the, in the, in the school musical and both things happened at once. The, 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 the baseball season overlapped with the, the season of rehearsing for the play. I had to make a very difficult decision about which one I was going to do. I didn't think at the time I'm making an economic decision, but that's, uh, essentially what I was doing. Um, the people that I was describing at the beginning of this who hold economics at arm's length as a matter of uh, uh, practice or of mental hygiene, um, you know, would say, well, that's that's odd that you describe that as an economic decision. It doesn't involve anything having to do with uh, making money or, uh, you know, interest rates or bond prices or any, anything that I tend to think of as, an e- as, as the, the meat and potatoes of economics. But it, fun- it absolutely is an economic decision. Anytime you're making a, a, a sort of a, a, a choice uh, that requires you to forego something that you value in favor of something else that you value, that's an economic decision. So that's one example. Um, you know, the big example, probably the the the, the showpiece example uh, that I that I turn to in my book is is the example of my parents who um, lived their whole lives as sort of <laughs> as what you might call wage slaves. They were just working for uh, you know institutions. My dad worked for they were teachers. My dad worked for a while for the county government in uh, in the place where I grew up in New Jersey. And then around about the time he was 50 years old, he lost his job. Um, 
and found himself sort of like stuck in midlife and, and unsure of what to do. He scraped together a few dollars and managed to buy this local bar from an older fellow. He had been working there nights, uh, you know, for some extra cash because he had children, teenage children who were getting ready to go to college. Um, so he bought this place and at the age of 50 years old with zero, precisely zero training in anything relating to business or uh, uh, of that nature, you know, he had never, he had never taken a class in accounting or meeting a payroll or ordering inventory or, uh, you know, paying his taxes. Like, you know, he was sort of like sailing through life like most people do working for a living. He bought this business and somehow in the span of about five years turned it into a, a what you might call a going concern. I'm not going to say they got, they got you know independently wealthy off the bar, but they did very, very well, and it enabled them to live a very, um, uh, a very successful American life story. Uh, and I, I use this, I refer to this, I go back to this uh, over and over in the book because I think it's an example of just how miraculous the free market is that uh, if you show up every day and you keep your nose clean and you play by the rules, very chances are you going to be rewarded um, very handsomely. So I know that my own parents didn't look at it that way. They just, you know, I think they might've thought that, you know, fortune had smiled on them for reasons, uh, uh, reasons unknown, but in, in actual fact, they were um, making the best possible use of the free market um, that, you know, using, using the system that's not a system precisely as it was intended, which was to make a living for themselves and in, to increase the, the social good, which is exactly what Hennessy's Washington Bar did. It served as a kind of a, a spoke for a, 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 a hub uh, for a, a bunch of smaller businesses that, that fed off and interacted with it. And also for, as a sort of a, a feeder for larger businesses in the community, as well as a place for people to hang out and have a few cold beers, which, uh, you know, I'm the kind of guy that thinks that that's a net social good. So, um, uh, you know, the story that I tell about my parents' bar, I think, it, it neatly sort of uh, sums up both or, you know, uh, touches both of the bases that I wanted to touch at the beginning, which was to give a primer on basic economics they really succeeded with simply all they had was the basics because they didn't know any economics. And, um, you know, capitalism was very, very good to them. Uh, it, it often, uh, you know, uh, in spite of their, um, their own, you know, sort of thinking on the subject. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, that's a very long-winded way of uh, uh, explaining what's going on in my book and forgetting what the original question was that you asked. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's very good. I love the personal accounts, and I think that's part of the magic of your book in that uh, it introduces economic concepts, but in a very sort of touching and, and personal way. Uh, so we were talking about um, the trade-offs. You mentioned as a, as a consumer, um, uh, you make trade-offs. You described a, a situation where your 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 limiting uh, resource is is time. You don't have infinite time. You have to choose whether you want to go to bas baseball practice or or, or um, theater. Uh, some of us make trade offs uh, based on uh, economy. You have a, a, a uh, an example in your book about ice cream. If if you like strawberry ice cream and uh, it's a thin price as chocolate, there's no nothing to worry about. You choose the strawberry. If strawberry were a hundred times more expensive, you'd have to then consider whether it was a hundred times more valuable to you when and you want to trade a hundred dollars for a scoop rather than a dollar for an alternative uh, um, flavor. Now on the producer side, of course, in this world, um, we're both 
consumers and producers. You described very, very colorfully uh, your dad's choice of going from one type of uh, producer of, of, of labor to, um, to a different kind. Uh, describe for our, our listeners your concept um, where you find how markets uh, inform our decisions and where, where, what we decide as consumers, but also how we decide which, which uh, labor we'll, we'll produce or which products we'll produce. Well, I think it's very interesting because, uh, you know, I use the example of the ice cream in the book to sort of make a larger point about how we how we assign values to things. Uh, but the most important uh, bit of it is that we do it often on the fly. We do it without really, uh, you know, getting out a pen and a paper or a spreadsheet and sort of comparing how much we prefer strawberry ice cream to chocolate ice cream. You know, uh, it would be sort of insane if you walked around making those kind of calculations explicitly. Um, so, you know, when you go to uh, a restaurant and you decide, or, you know, let's just say when you're deciding which restaurant to go to, you're going to make some sort of implicit on the fly calculation about how much you can afford, how much it's, how good it's going to be, whether it's worth it, and um, what you're going to have to give up in order to do it. Um, uh, you know, economics is, um, economics is uh, complicated, but the way we live is a lot less complicated than it. Well, the, both both things are a lot less complicated than they need to be. So I'm 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 approaching this whole thing from the point of view that of uh, you know you're you're all whoever you are are better economists than you think you are because life is really imbued with this stuff. You don't you know there's not a there's no sort of line of separation between your your personal life or your social life and your economic life or your professional life and your economic life, which I think is a, a, a view that an awful lot of people have, which is that sort of like there's the business of making a living. There's the business of uh, buying and selling and fortune telling. And then there's my good life, my real life, my life where I get to do the things that I want to do and I don't have to worry about that stuff. The fact of the matter is you can't separate the two things. The two things aren't separable. You are, you know, just like you sort of you are one person, whether you're um, going for a run or whether you're on your knees praying in church or whether you're at the desk or at your job, you're the same person in all of those places. You can't separate, you can't factor out um, economics from decisions about whether to have another, uh, you know, uh, another scoop of ice cream. You know, it's all sort of economics is life in that way. So we've got this wonderful system that, uh, again, I think we're in violent agreement and here. We're, yeah, <laughs> um, where um, uh, as consumers, we get abundant choices and we decide for ourselves, which is more important to us. As as producers, we uh, can work where we like and, and decide whether we want a lot of income or free time or uh, status, whatever our priorities are. Uh, but your book does uh, also touch on the fact that um, despite the many uh, benefits of uh, free markets, it has its detractors, both on the right and the left. Uh, um, free marketers are, uh, I would say, rhetorically at least, under attack uh, in many different uh, extreme circles. Um, why do you think uh, such a wonderful system that um, essentially pays you to, to make choices, um, why would that be under attack? What do you think fundamentally, uh, what are the vulnerabilities of such a, uh, a wonderful system? Why, why wouldn't everyone be in violent agreement? Well, um... You know, there's a lot of economic ignorance. 
Um, there is a, you know, there's economic, you know, there's competition in, in the, in the, in the marketplace for ideas. So there are, uh, you know, uh, there are people who just disagree with what I've been saying that, um, the laws of economics are observable reality. They fundamentally disagree with that. Um, you know, they say they, they believe as I was explaining earlier that there are different systems and you can pick and choose. Um, I think that if you try to um, fight the laws of economics, you end up uh, creating a lot of friction that not only reduces prosperity, but reduces overall happiness. And in some places can, you know, reduce lifespans and get people killed. So you have uh, in the you know in the modern American context, let's just say uh, the free market is under attack from the extreme light uh, left and the extreme right um, it, for different reasons. So you've got your Bernie Sanders types or your Elizabeth Warren types or your um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Although I don't think her uh, her uh, her uh, criticism of the market is as evolved or as uh, uh, mature, let's say, as uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, who just don't like uh, the inequality that they see. Um, they think that there's a way to use the government power to to uh, to do some leveling, to bring these sort of uh, differences in in individual wealth and concentrations of what or what they think of as concentrations of corporate power and uh, wealth. Um, there's a way to sort of close the gap through taxation and government intervention. And uh, anybody who's listening to this will be familiar with that point of view, and I, I won't have to describe it much, much further. Uh, we've run this experiment a couple of times in the 20th century, um, putting uh, ideas of equity over sort of a society's uh, overall prosperity, and it fails every single time. It's never worked. Um, it's caused great misery, um, many deaths, and um, an impoverishment of the human spirit. So I think we can, you know, just between us chickens here, I think we can just uh, uh, <laughs> we can dis we can discard that as a, as a, as a possible alternative to free markets. Uh, lately, uh, there's been um, uh, a criticism of the market system uh, from the right. In, in the United States from a very unlikely set of former uh, mainstream, um, we call them mainstream Republicans or, or regular Republicans or, who have, have migrated towards a philosophy that seems deeply informed by Catholic teaching, Catholic understanding of the proper ordering of um, the economic sphere uh, in service of a kind of a, a hazy notion of the common good. Um, uh, uh, a skepticism about the intentions of uh, modern politics and, and, a, and a real focus on the um, erosion of traditional systems and values and institutions that I talked about at the beginning that they, that they attribute to the forces, uh, the destructive forces of, of capitalism. Um, this is a sort of a, a rump faction. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that they have much of a constituency at the moment, but their um, criticism of the market appears to be very exciting to a lot of uh, young young conservatives, shall we say. So it's a real threat. I doubt that 
you know, they come broadly under the banner of national conservatives. They believe in a sort of uh, in a in a in protectionism, um, immigration restrictionism, a sort of a, a, a vision of an economy that is um, not open to the world and not free, but that is somehow put to the productive uh, still still cranks out, uh, you know, gobs and gobs of money that can be used to uh, pay people to have large families or something, some sort of like um, um, Hungarian fantasy of, of, of a sort of, <laughs> of, uh, of a Catholic integralist state. Uh, I, like I said, I don't see that this has much of a, a constituency politically. And oddly enough, it seems extremely anti-American in the sense that um, I, I believe very strongly that Americans, of, of which I know there is a diversity, um, are committed pretty much um, unshakably to the idea that they want, not that they want to get rich, but that they want to do well and they want to be able to pursue their ambitions, um, to develop their talents. And uh, Americans want to live in a country and in a society that values work that rewards excellence and, um, uh, and, and, you know, oddly enough, markets uh, provide an avenue for, for the ambitious, provide a, provide a way for um, new ideas, productive new ideas to come to the surface and to be explored and realized. None of these other economic options um, you know, I, I'm trying to avoid saying systems because I've just said that I would never say it, uh, but they are systems. So the free market is not a system. So none of these other economic systems provide that outlet for creativity, that outlet that, that can surface the productive impulse. Um, instead, they're focused on punitive things that, uh, that, that, that send that impulse scurrying for cover uh, to the detriment of, of, of the entire society. Uh, if, if, uh, and I'm not making some kind of, um, you know, fountain or Ayn Rand argument in favor of liberating, uh, you know, the 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 the, uh, the Superman entrepreneurs and and you know giving giving Elon Musk and anyone like him, you know, the license to sort of organize our affairs. I'm just talking about my parents. I'm talking about people who want to start a business or who want to um, um, see how far they can go with an idea. Um, you want to live in a country where that's encouraged. You don't want to live in a country. I, I don't think most Americans want to live in a country where that's discouraged or punished, which is the kind of the option that we're getting from both of these, uh, both of these um, market s skeptical groups that I've just been describing. Indeed, your book is very, very good. It's uh, replete with lots of references to um, some of my favorite economists, um, uh, among them, uh, Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, uh, Henry Hazlitt, all these wonderful uh, authors. Um, but I think what you're talking about is the notion of, uh, on both sides, on the extremes, uh, uh, something more akin to a command economy that's that's ordered. Uh, indeed, the word to try not to use is system. I think they imagine a system in which uh, wiser people than us can order things in a way that would make us happier than we can make ourselves. Um, I think it was uh, Thomas Sowell uh, um, who said, we either have to give up on utopia or give up on freedom. Uh, and uh, in my view, uh, those who give up on 
freedom and in favor of utopia are going down a dangerous path. Um, I, I mentioned some of the um, uh, uh, economists that you cite in your book. What, what was your um, your inspiration for this book? I um, I can guess uh, because I've read some of the books mentioned in in the in the in the book. Um, where um, where do you find a kindred spirit among uh, modern economists or somewhat modern economists? Well, all the guys that you mentioned, for the reasons that you mentioned, um, Henry Hazlitt's book Economics in One Lesson is a sort of the the inspiration. Although you know, I, I wouldn't uh, dare to suggest that I did as good a job as he did, but I I do see that that book is. Um, in spirit, uh, what I'm trying to do, it, it was written in the late 40s, so it's a bit uh, outdated. The ideas aren't outdated. Some of the examples are a little dated. Um, you know, Hazlitt was an interesting guy, didn't even go to college. So I like the idea of um, not, you know, not needing to be a PhD in order to grasp, you know, the, the sort of the basics of economics. And also wanting to speak to people who um, have never read Tom Sowell or Milton Friedman, uh, who may be afraid of those names or maybe have never heard of them, just to sort of uh, sprinkle them throughout my book, so like birdseed, so that if they're just pecking along and liking what they're reading, um, they might be inspired to to search out some of those other names. You know, it's like uh, uh, <laughs> in the early days of rock and roll, like uh, you know, whatever whatever the um, whatever the Beatles or uh, the who wrote in their liner notes about, you know, how much they liked Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters or whatever. It inspired a lot of people to go hunting for those records and revived a lot of careers. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe in some small way, I can do the same thing for Henry Hazlitt. Indeed. Um, I want to get back to your own personal uh, experience. Again, you talked about the journey your parents had. I, I have a question that it wasn't answered in the book, but I want to uh, describe what you, how you characterize your, your parents, and, and at least as you were growing up. Uh, you said, uh, quote, my parents were mid-century American Democrats, pure and simple, old-fashioned liberals. They believed in the promise of America, but felt that it hadn't fully been delivered for a lot of people, which, to be fair, it hadn't then and hasn't today. Bridging the gap between the promise and the reality, in their view, was the government's job and its purpose. Now, I think a lot of our listeners perhaps grew up in homes um, where parents had that same basic worldview. Uh, and yet you, uh, you're their son and you're uh, working at the Wall Street Journal and you, in a sense, uh, came to a different uh, view. Um, do you think um, there's a way to help um, as a society re-educate or reorient our, our, our future, our youth, on the the benefits of markets and perhaps um, uh, the limits of uh, government policy to uh, to quote unquote fix the problems of markets. How do we get from let's say where even your parents were perhaps fifty years ago to where we are today and where again um, fewer and fewer people seem to have faith in markets? Where what do we do to help uh, cultivate uh, a deep respect? and understanding of markets? Well, the answer is very simple. Um, every high school in America needs to assign visible hand a wealth of notions on the miracle of the market <laughs> to every student in America. That's the only way out of this mess. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, um, I don't recall ever studying. I think that the high school I went to offered a course in economics. I don't know what was going on there because I didn't take it. Uh, and I wouldn't have taken it. Um, I suspect it was a few charts, a few graphs, um, some mm, 
elementary discussion of supply and demand and and then some economic history which i mean who knows i'm just making stuff up i have no idea what was going on there but what i know is it wasn't required and it wasn't anything that anybody was drawn to who wasn't going to go study accounting in college anyway um i think that we need to find a way i mean this is a this is a bigger project than you know, I'm being flipped by saying they should assign my book. It's a bigger project than a book. And it's a, a, bigger, a bigger project than, you know, the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. Although uh, I do recall that it, when I was in college and I took an economics course, um, on day one or day two, my professor said, you know, one of the best things you could do right now, if you want to study economics, is get yourself a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Get yourself a subscription to the Financial Times, any financial newspaper, although the Wall Street Journal is clearly the best one, uh, and read it every day. Um, and if you do that for a couple of years, you will certainly have an understanding of how economies work, how the world works, how politics work. Um, you know, the bad news is that newspapers of all stripes are are dying and and appear to be going away. So, uh, I don't know how useful that suggestion will be to a college student in 2022. Um, you know, uh, if I knew the answer, I would have put it in the back of the book, Joe. I, I, I think that um, the very first step would be to um, understand what a market is and how it works. And the second step would be to stop lying about it, you know, to stop, to stop, um, to stop, you know, um, just stop telling lies about what what markets are and what they what they're there for. They're not there so that one or two guys can get rich at the expense of everyone else. That's not what a market economy is for. Market economy is for, um, you know, expanding the pie, for raising the tide, so that all the boats will lift. That's what a market economy is for. Not all boats go up at the same rate. Pie doesn't get, you know, not everybody's eating from the same plate around the table when we're cutting up the pie. I understand the markets have shortcomings. They um, they occasionally leave people behind uh, in very, um, you know, visible ways. Um, but better to live in, a, in an environment where there's enough prosperity to help the people who fall behind, to help those who fall behind, than to destroy wealth uh, in the name of, uh, making everybody equal. Indeed, I don't know who first said it. Is uh, you know sort of uh, I don't know what the alternative to markets is. Perhaps socialism or command economy. And and we we trade in this case uh, with socialism. We trade uh, you know uneven prosperity for universal misery. And yeah. uh, and that 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 would be a shame. Uh, if it gives you any comfort, I'll say um, uh, my time at the Kennedy School, we had some remedial economics for those who hadn't taken economics their whole whole lives. And uh, on the first day, essentially, we were explaining. Supply and demand, you know, the supply curve goes up and demand curve goes down. And one young Harvard student raised his hand and said, geez, if this is true, everything I believe in this life is is wrong. And, yeah. I, and I said, I turned to him and said, it is wrong. Yeah. Uh, but it, they, uh, that could have been me. That, I had the exact same experience. <laughs> you know, uh, I went to school. Uh, I dropped out of college when I was young in the early 90s. And I went back in the early 2000s, right after 9-11, uh, because that day that event really shook up my worldview 
And I knew that I wanted to study something having to do with politics um, because I wanted to I wanted to help a lot of people have this impulse after 9-11. You know, I want to do something. I don't want to just continue as I had been. And so I started studying politics and I thought, you know, I'm not going to, you know, what I'm, if you if if all you study is politics and you don't study economics, then maybe you're not getting the full picture. So I just wandered into an economics course and I had exactly the same. I didn't wander into it. I signed up for it and and, and attended as a uh, enrolled student. But I had the exact same experience as that person that you just described. I mean, my 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 head popped off. I couldn't believe how true it all was. It really turned me around. I thought. I mean, it's it's not fair to the people that I that I love and who, who raised me. But I thought to myself, how come nobody told me about this? This is all comports with what my um, with what my instincts tell me are true about the world and everything else that I had been hearing about how we could have it all or how the government can um, improve lives by you know taxing the rich and spreading the wealth um i couldn't believe that i that i didn't that i didn't know about this i couldn't believe that i had believed that so i have a lot of sympathy for that young harvard student who's probably now uh running a bank or a country somewhere that's right a third world country unfortunately um uh, so we're getting close to the end of our time together uh let our listeners know uh now that they've gotten a little taste of uh, what your book has has to offer where can they find it buy it um buy many copies for their friends uh how do they find you well um the great thing about the market is there you can find the book almost anywhere there are a lot of um players in the online book selling and delivery uh, uh, game. Uh, there's one big one, obviously, which is called Amazon, which sort of uh, blots out the sun when it comes to buying and selling books, but you don't have to go there. You can go to a lot of different places. Um, you know, I don't have a website. If that's what you're asking me, you can go to my publisher's website, which is Encounter Books. That's the name of my publisher. And I'm going to give your listeners a very special offer, not available anywhere else except right here. We're going to move some product here. I'm, I'm which, uh, so if they this. go to encounterbooks.com and, and buy my book directly from the publisher, they can enter a discount code, which is my last name, Hennessy, H-E-N-N-E-S-S-E-Y, and they get 30% off. So, uh Wonderful. Only well, available. Yeah. <laughs> limited only time available, only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For Hubwonk listeners, uh, yeah. a special offer. I think this is the first uh, we've ever uh, presented on the show. Supplies so. are limited. So act now. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Our our our, our uh, callers are standing by. Um, yeah. All right. So thank you very much for uh, for joining us today, Matthew. This was great. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm I'm looking forward to. I, I think there should be a follow up book, uh, uh, a second version, and where we, we go a little more into a little more detail on uh, uh, steps forward. How how are you gonna how are you gonna cure this this world? So I, I really appreciate your uh, your thought, your insight, and and the warm wonderful warmth of your book. Thank you for for joining us today at Hubwonk. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the podcast and Pioneer. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. 
If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or offer a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.